Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. I am recording this episode in the midst of a loud bookstore after an event we just did with Grace Blakely, an economist from the UK who's a member of the Labour Party and who just wrote a new book called Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. At an event at Volumes Book Cafe in Chicago, we talked to her about the book, about the forthcoming election in the UK, and how we can build solidarity across uh, the Atlantic between the rising left in the United States and the rising left in the United Kingdom. So here's my conversation with Grace Blakely. Grace, let's let's start with uh, just before we get into the sort of current event stuff that's going on in the UK. There's a, an election that we're going to be talking about. There's there's the our the absolute boy himself, Jezza, uh, who we're getting into. But your book is called "Stolen: How to Save the World from Financialization." Uh, and in the book, you sort of lay out what what financialization is, and that has a really strong um, impact on sort of. The, what the Labour Party is going to do, what we in the U.S. Uh, as a rising uh, socialist left here are going to do. So let's just start with that basic uh, idea. What is this financialization that you uh, write about in the book? How has it played out in the U.K. and also here in the United States? Yeah, so thanks so much, everyone, for coming out on a Saturday night to listen to me. What is financialization? Um, the technical definition is the increasing role of financial motives, financial markets, financial actors, and financial institutions in the operation of the international and domestic economy. Now, basically, that means kind of bigger banks, bigger investors, um, kind of other financial institutions, shadow banks, asset managers, private equity, etc., cetera, uh, growing themselves and also playing a much more significant role in other areas of the economy. Um, it's essentially a kind of um, an adaption of capitalism that gives rise to a new way of organizing the economy, a kind of new model of growth. Um, And in the book, I kind of look at how this has affected different areas of the economy. Uh, So, you know, I, I look back to like, laissez-faire at the beginning of the century which breaks down in the great depression and you get a decade and a half of crisis culminating in the second world war after the second world war you get the rise of social democracy a bunch of institutions in which organized labor has more power and in which the state plays a much greater role in kind of mediating the ups and downs of the business cycle Um, And then I look at how that breaks down in the 1970s, partly to do with what's going on at the level of the international economy. So the breakdown of the bread and wood system, which uh, contains restrictions on capital mobility. So when that system broke down, you suddenly had very mobile capital, very mobile financial capital. And how, you know, that, that moment of crisis, which became really severe from 1973 when you had the first oil price spike led to this again another decade of kind of political economic social crisis where institutions break down sense making breaks down and everyone's like right what's going to come next out of that model emerges this new kind of um well the new ideology which is of neoliberalism and the ideology of neoliberalism so those kind of policy proposals uh the deregulation of finance privatization uh 
um, a kind of assault on labor unions lead to a rebalancing of power in society away from labor and towards capital. And within capital, the dominant faction then comes to be finance capital. So money managers and, and lenders. And yeah, this results in a, in a kind of quite deep rooted change in the economies of particularly the US and the UK, but also economies all around the world. Um, and in the book, I have different chapters on how the rise of, of finance and financialization affects the corporation, the household, and the state. This is based on Keynes's demand equation that says the economy, you know, economic demand is made up of like investment by businesses, consumption spending by households, government spending, and net exports. So I look at how each of these different areas has been financialized. So given what you just said about financialization, I guess, uh, you know, for somebody who is like, oh, that sounds interesting, but like, I don't, I'm not quite sure what that really means for for people who want to see the world look a different way than the than the sort of misery that we currently are uh, experiencing right now. I mean the driving force behind the argument is is basically it's it's an attempt to kind of bring class back, bring a class analysis back into our understanding of the economy. Um and our understanding of political organizing as well. Uh so, you know, the argument is not that there's like a bunch of big banks and they kind of take everything over and that leads to a bad form of capitalism and we should go back to a good form of capitalism by changing policy. Like we should come up with a plan and then implement the plan. Uh, these transformations are, are based on uh, structural changes in the nature of global capitalism combined with policy choices uh, made by, um, you know, individuals that, you know, are, are making decisions on the basis of the interests of their class um, and how those policy choices and structural changes change the balance of power in society. And the, the way in which I describe the, the labor capital dichotomy is to say it's a distinction between those who live off work and those who live off wealth. And that's kind of, you know, people don't really respond well when you say workers and bosses or labor and capital. But this kind of distinction people intuitively understand um, and it allows you to say, right, there is a qualitative distinction as well as a quantitative distinction between the people in society who own all the stuff uh, and who are who generate returns from owning that stuff and everyone else who has to work for a living, right? And even if you earn quite a lot of money, you still have to work for a living and you are still, you know, reliant upon, uh, you, you are still exploited for your labor in one way or another even if you are homeless and jobless you still have to undertake labor to survive even if you are a housewife you are still working right you know all of these things are work because most people have to work in order to reproduce themselves reproduce their families and that is the big distinction that exists in capitalist society between people who have to work and people who don't um and the the kind of class basis of financialization is effectively the growing power of one faction of capital. That's people who lend money and people who manage money. That faction of capital, not necessarily taking over capitalism, but changing the way it works, allowing it to adapt to a different set of circumstances. Um, and then the kind of organic crisis that emerges from the model that is created. I suppose the one way of looking at the rise of financialization is to understand it as a kind of an adaption, a fix, right? What David Harvey would call like a, a fix. And you can think of debt uh, in particular as like a temporal fix because you're effectively extracting income from the future. Um, so, you know, in, <clears throat> in the 70s, 
uh, you have this organic crisis of capitalism and uh, that partly results from falling profit rates in the global north. And the, the big fix to this is extraction of debt from the future and is also a class fix. So kind of hyper exploitation of um, of working people. And for a while, that class settlement is institutionalized in this kind of neoliberal framework that we have from the 1980s onwards um and it seems like that is the way things are going to be forever right you know uh we have economies that are increasingly unequal where a tiny number of people own all the stuff and make all the rules and also where this distinction between people who live off work and people who live off wealth doesn't seem to be as important anymore because of this idea of property owning democracy thatcher reagan various other kind of neoliberal prime ministers uh, and presidents think it's a good idea to spread property ownership in order to kind of elide that distinction um and yeah give people a stake as i said in, in the kind of stability of a system that creates fundamental kind of high levels of inequality and let me um, just interrupt so you say in the book that part of that is like first you have to defeat the labor movement yeah which is the 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 sort of countervailing force to some of this stuff and then also puts forward an idea of solidarity in society and all of that. Instead, you, 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 once you defeat it, then you can spread the kind of stuff you're talking about, like home ownership, put people further into debt. Instead of uh, increasing consumption through higher wages, you get more debt and all of that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, the argument as to how this comes about is Thatcherism is the use of the state to wage class war. And that's the same as neoliberalism everywhere in the world, right? Um, Thatcher comes to power with, if not an explicit understanding of what she needs to do, then an implicit sense that power is monopolized in society by working people, which is not true. I mean, you know, at that point, workers have more power in terms of how the economy works, but they, ha- you know, they are still um, in this kind of corporatist settlement with bosses, the state workers, kind of their interests kind of balancing out. Um, and when Thatcher takes control of the state, she basically revokes um, the role of the state in mediating between labor and capital, which is what you'd had in the, the post-war period, and instead overtly sides with capital and with one faction of capital, international financial capital. Um, and in order to implement the model that she needs to implement, she knows that it's not enough to boost the power of the class that she is seeking to um, to represent their interests. She also needs to delegitimize and actually actively defeat her opponents, her class opponents. Uh, Thatcher came into power with a plan to take on the country's labor movements one after another, starting with the miners because they wanted to take on the most powerful first so the others would be demoralized, cutting off their access to uh, state welfare, using the police to like actively fight against them when they were striking, um, which is obviously something more familiar in the US, was until, you know, the 1980s, maybe less familiar in that context in the UK. Um, and just generally wielding every form of state power that she could in order to defeat the miners. And then after that, all the labor movements you know, all the other elements of the labor movement that, that attempted to resist. And so, yeah, using the state to wage class war allowed her to create the conditions for the emergence of financialization, which is that there was no labor movement to resist. She was able to privatize a bunch of state industries without any resistance. She was able to deregulate the banks without any resistance. And in terms of like the implications, I suppose, for this moment, they basically hinge on the fact that this model, like, you know, every single mode of capitalism you can imagine from like libertarian to social democratic has its own contradictions that emerge from 
the the fundamental tension between those two groups between people who live off work and people who live off wealth um and those tensions exploded in 2008 with the debt bubble with the housing bubble that had been created by the attempt to create this class of mini capitalists um and we're now living in its its shadow and we're starting to see uh i mean class politics has has come back you know very powerfully all over the world because it's now obvious that the interests of those two groups are diametrically opposed and the you know one gains the other loses you have this word solutionism that you talk about as one way of fixing what's wrong with the world uh before we go into the right way to fix the world can you just explain what solutionism is because i think it will sound familiar to some people (laughs) yeah you guys are gonna love this someone reviewed my book and was like this is a book written for people who you know like to think of themselves on the left but support a certain candidate because they think that all you need to do to shift power in society is to have a nice set of policies that you can just implement because that's how power works um and that's kind of what i refer to as this idea of 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 solutionism um it's the idea that you know you just need a clever idea you just need a plan um, and then, you know, the, the, the clever, brilliant leader candidate takes up the plan. Everyone else is passive, goes out and votes for the leader candidate and the candidate does the plan. Um, and then everything changes. It's like, you know, you elect someone, they go into office and they press a big button that says socialism and then everything's fine. Right. Um, or doesn't say socialism. <laughs> Anti-corruption. Know, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, even, you know, yeah. Um, attacking shareholder capitalism or crony reducing, yeah crony capitalism yeah this is you know and, and generally these people are seeking to go back from bad capitalism nasty capitalism to nice capitalism i.e the capitalism that we had during the second world war and you know there's no question that that form of social democratic capitalism we had then was uh created lower levels of inequality um you know was less oppressive less exploitative etc but there's a reason that it collapsed and the finance-led growth emerged out of it and that neoliberalism emerged out of it and the reason for that was that social democracy never resolved those tensions between labor and capital they just pushed them under the surface which was fine when you had a massive growing economy when you had this big wave of globalization when you had empire right when there was still a bunch of space and time into which you could expand into which capitalism could expand um but when that ceased or when that became less the case, uh, when, you know, in the 1970s returns fell, there was basically less to kind of go around between those two different groups. Then the kind of tri- tripartite agreement where the state would mediate between bosses and workers and say, you get this much, you get this much. It breaks down because bosses say, we need to cut our costs because inflation is high. There's less to go around. Workers say we need wage rises at least in line with inflation. And so you get the class conflict that exists under the surface and that bubbles away under the surface exploding into uh, into the fore. And that is what we're seeing today is the reemergence of the tensions that were rendered latent under finance-led growth in a different way this time. You know, this time they were they were uh, pushed under the surface through the expansion of property ownership. But now those class tensions are re-emerging and we are suddenly after the end of history moment when, you know, in the, in the uh, you know, in the 19, uh, well, 1989, this idea that history was over, capitalism had won, socialism was dead, things could only get better. The rest of history would be a story of the rest of the world catching up with the global north. Um, 
all that breaking down and people realizing, oh, right, no, capitalism still works exactly the same way as it's always worked. This massive boom benefited the rich, this massive bust, the heap, the cost of that was heaped on working people. Now we're living in this extended moment of stagnation, right? Whether you're talking about the US, the UK, Europe, Japan, any like a bunch of other economies that are, are reeling from the effects of their debt bubble, they have very, you know, lower levels of growth, stagnant productivity, high inequality, um, and just don't seem to be going anywhere. In that context, the idea of going back to a social democratic settlement, which is premised upon dividing the gains from growth, and it has to be growth between two different groups, allowing basically the rich to have as much as they want and workers to have enough to kind of keep them happy. It's just completely farcical. Uh, this you is know, like Tony Blair's argument. Right? Yeah, yeah, been yeah. Like, it wasn't that he wanted poor people to be poor. He was like, no, if we let these rich people get really rich, then we can like tax them more. They'll, they'll pay more into yeah. public programs. And like then it'll, it'll it's basically a version of trickle down in the UK. Yeah, it was like, and you know, to be fair, when the economy is growing loads and when you have the rest of the world to exploit, you can say, you know, there's a possibility of class compromise. You can build a system that's stable even if it doesn't get, get rid of those tensions. But not anymore. And all of those places where you have, you know, the, re the, the those structural conditions exist. So the, the the tensions that underlie that relationship have reemerged, which is basically everywhere in the world. But you don't have a left to articulate what's going on. All it does is feed the far right because the far right can say, oh, yeah, actually, you know, the working class is the white working class. And the reason that you're, you know, you're getting squeezed is because of all the other members of the working class who aren't really the working class because they're from somewhere else. They're coming over and they're taking your stuff. So look away from the people that are exploiting you and look towards the people that are kind of, you know, just as if not more exploited than you and pin your kind of... uh your fears on them. That's that's basically where social democracy has gotten, well, a kind of a continued attachment to a very like boring 1990s form of social democracy has gotten many, many parts of Europe. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we are in one of those positions now. We're in one of those moments where it is very obvious that the nature of capitalism is zero sum between people who live off work and those who live off wealth. And it, we are at a point of deciding who wins in this extended moment of crisis. So we are lucky to live in a moment, I guess. I mean, you in particular, you're a little luckier than we are in the United States in that uh, you have the, the left wing of the Labour Party, the, the wing of the Labour Party that is, uh, has rejected the kind of Blairite uh, version of what we, were, what we were just discussing. You've got instead the Jeremy Corbyn left wing of the, of the party that's ascendant that is talking about class in a way that hasn't been talked about uh, or at least hasn't been dominant within the party in a very long time. Um, and you have an election uh, that is coming up here very soon. I mean, I guess just because we're dumb Americans who don't know anything. Not not me. I'm a, I know everything. <laughs> I'm a citizen of the world. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know, ex I know all, all, you know, British politics back and forth. Um, but for the rest of <laughs> these people, uh, what, you know, just give us the basics. I mean, obviously people know that like Brexit is happening, which is this thing that's in the background of everything, which lays out its own uh horrible set of uh you know traps and uh really thorny situations to wrestle with but on the other hand we also have this moment where class is back on the agenda um so going into this election i guess let's just start with the basics like what you know what what is the party putting forward what are the party's prospects how do you deal with this question of brexit what what's going on yeah i mean so i guess brexit came at the perfect time for the right in that it has 
been a way for them to mute the the class tensions that have reemerged because it's exactly what you were just talking about yeah like when we when there are these problems from the financialized version of capitalism then the left doesn't speak to them then you get something like the brexit exactly and the, the problem with brexit has been that we have failed to articulate a critique of globalization and particularly its impact on economic geography um, and this is something that you're seeing all over the world now after the kind of financial globalization of the uh, 80s onwards, which was premised upon the free movement of, of capital all around the world and therefore led to the concentration of investment in these big metropolitan hubs and deindustrialization everywhere else. Um, and the Brexit vote has been concentrated in those deindustrialized areas. I mean, it, it is a coalition between the, the working class vote in those areas and basically rich old people who have a bunch of wealth stored up in their homes and don't really give a shit what happens. They just don't like immigrants. That is is cutting across the coalition that the left needs to mobilize because, you know, on the Remain side, you have on the left a bunch of people who don't particularly like the EU, but also, you know, don't like the idea of a xenophobic campaign winning out and, and uh, you know, the, the conflict that inevitably any socialist government will have the EU being managed on those terms. And liberals who are basically like, the EU is great. Let's go back to 2007 when, well, before 2006, where everything was fine and there were no problems with the economy or even like 2012. Um, so, yeah. You can and see just how- for those who don't, aren't familiar with the EU, I mean, like that, you're, you're being sarcastic, obviously, but like, we, you can't go back to that because the EU is this fundamentally like neoliberal institution. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like Trump and um, Brexit are often compared to one another, but there's some very, you know, there's some big differences in that the EU is like historically most socialists have not been fans of the EU. Corbyn um, has a long history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, you know, way. Tony Benn, who's the late, great, brilliant, wonderful, amazing Tony Benn, did not like the European Union, um, and there is an argument that it has become like more uh friendly to organized labor um which is it's probably slightly true but it's still effectively run in the interests of uh, you know an international uh elite um and particularly i mean you know the, the power dynamics within the eu if you look at who has the power it's basically uh industrialists in germany uh international finance in you know various parts of brussels and different parts of the eu um and yeah, just it, it is it is a, a capitalist club um, that has done a bunch of bad stuff within its borders. When you're looking at you know what happened in Greece, that has a, a load of quite regressive rules. When you're talking about state intervention in the economy, when you're talking about capital mobility, and that has been broadly a fairly negative force internationally. That has acted in imperialist ways. Uh, you know, a lot, whether that's through things like the common agricultural policy, whether it's through, you know, just the nature of its rules on capital mobility that facilitate the kind of, you know, sucking in of capital to to various parts of Europe um, and the impoverishment of various other parts of the world. So, um, yeah, like for a whole load of reasons, the European Union, in the same way that no one in the US would argue that supporting the imf is like an internationalist stance many people on the left in the uk would argue that supporting the the european union 
is not an internationalist stance. Uh, it does is not equated with you know solidarity amongst working people in different in different parts of the the continent. So that's been a very difficult thing to manage. Um, uh, combine like just general dissatisfaction with the EU on the left with the fact that we have failed to articulate a proper critique of globalization, and you basically have you know left and right split down the middle between like you know in inverted commas open and closed and it has just increased the importance of having really really radical messaging brexit was brought to us by the right and by continuously focusing on brexit without having a clear message about what it really means uh we have had been hemorrhaging support the task for this election, and I actually think because people are mostly just completely sick of talking about Brexit, because the main conversation about Brexit has been about like, you know, subsection B, clause C, of withdrawal agreement F, and parliamentary procedure being blah, blah, blah. no one cares. Uh, the task in this election is like changing the terms of the debate. So saying, look, we're going to do this about Brexit. We're going to have a second referendum, whatever. We'll do that later. But mainly for the last three years, we've been talking about nothing except this stupid, you know, international arrangement. And we have, we've had a decade of wage stagnation. We have massively high levels of private debt. We have corporations that aren't paying their taxes. We have an NHS that's at breaking point. We have all these problems, a housing crisis that are affecting your lives. Let's talk about that. And then we can deal with Brexit. So can you talk about what's in the um, the manifesto and what, what Labour is going to be running on over the next six weeks? Like what what is it that, you know, besides this, this question of Brexit that you were just talking about, what are the, the proposals that uh, the party is putting forward to try to uh, do exactly what you said, like address all of those issues in a sort of like positive way, not just respond to like, no, we don't want this bad right-wing populist xenophobic vision, but we have a robust, uh, you could say, like quasi-democratic socialist or at least social democratic vision for what the UK could look like. What are what are briefly um, some of the, the highlights of, of what that agenda is? Yeah, so I mean, we don't know for certain yet because the next manifesto hasn't come out. But what we do know is that the the movement passed a bunch of stuff at Labour Party conference. And the, like one of the big things about Corbynism, which will be not that familiar to a US audience is the importance of kind of democratizing the party. Uh, so, you know, we have like these structures of the Labour Party and they've historically kind of marginalized members. Um, we don't know anything about that here. Yeah, I mean, you guys States. don't have political parties, really. So <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, somehow we have an extremely undemocratic non-party. Yeah. That we, we <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of like democratizing those structures to give members a greater voice. And that has preceded some way not far enough yet but this year at conference conference is supposed to be the body that sets policy although historically leaders have marginalized it this year at conference we passed a load of really good policy ideas um so uh one of them is obviously the green new deal with a target for reaching uh net zero by 2030 which is super ambitious um yeah very really really excited about that and that's the, the party's official stance. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a, a question about the wording because obviously we didn't have a new deal, but basically, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, we have like Nancy Pelosi talking about like the green dream or whatever. Bloody you know, hell. So. That sounds so bad. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, yeah. Then we've got the four day week, which goes alongside that because it's, you know, environmentalism yeah. as well as, yeah. <laughs> Everybody yeah. better snap. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we passed a resolution to abolish private schools. 
There is, yeah, we don't know whether or not that's going to get in or whether it will just be removing charitable status, but one way or another, you know, stuff will be happening there. Uh, really importantly, uh, shutting down um, migration detention centers and uh, defending and extending free movement. Um, so not giving in to that, uh, you know, that attempt by various elements of the right to try and divide the left on these issues of migration and actually saying, no, solidarity amongst working people all over the world is the, 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 the you know, foundation of socialism. Um, we also did, God, what else did we have? Just like a resolutions to firm up, you know, some of the other policy commitments. So the inclusive ownership funds, for example, actually that was firmed up last year through conference. And this is the measure that Bernie's just announced, a more expansive version of which to, is to allow workers to have shares in their companies. Um, am I missing anything? Well, nationalization. Oh yeah, nationalization industry, right? was, yeah, it was, that was, that's old news. That's 2017. Yeah, nationalizing the railways. Um, I'm just trying to throw off water. the sexy stuff that we're like, oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. This is good stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, like, you know, stuff like stuff around the financial system, a national investment bank, uh, changes to the Bank of England. Um, there, oh, yeah, John McDonald just announced a load of stuff on housing. So giving tenants the right to buy their homes. Um like from their landlords, I mean, not obviously from the states, that'd be bad. Um, what else? I think there's just a load of stuff that's going on. And, you know, uh, uh, there is going to be a battle now as to what gets in the actual manifesto. Uh, but the good thing about all of this is that we now have, after a long time of trying to build it up, like a strong, assertive, self-confident social movement that is linked in itself with with labor unions. And, you know, we have big, powerful labor unions in the UK, but they're mostly general unions that are often quite bureaucratized, not particularly democratic, and like don't often like strikes. So, uh, again, yeah, something been... we know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Besides the CTU, never heard of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you guys, I mean, I've just seen UAW, a load of them got arrested, didn't they, for corruption, which is, yeah, not great. Uh, but yeah, you know, big bureaucratic labor unions that have historically not been that radical, but because of the kind of interaction with the membership are increasingly backing radical policy, which is great. Uh, so we have this big movement on the ground that hopefully will be able to continue to hold the leadership to account because, you know, as great as all of these politicians are and as important as they are to the movement, we cannot just rely on a bunch of nice people going into the state and then resolutely holding firm on all the positions that they they claim to hold we need a movement that is able to hold them to account if they backtrack or if you know things change and, uh, and you know whatever like the 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 deep state tries to like push back against us or uh we get you know finance capital organized all of these things that will definitely happen we need a movement to push back to hold our leaders to account and to fight back against the onslaught that any labor government will undoubtedly get and i think we have that which is really you know what it's what will win us the election and it's what if we get that far will allow us to build socialism so we could talk a bunch more about the election we have to save some of that because we're running out of time but last time there was a general election in the uk there was labor didn't win but it was a surprisingly positive yeah. result so uh we'll, we'll, we'll all be hoping for the best uh come december i keep seeing this photo of corbyn dressed up as Santa Claus <laughs> and the the election is happening in mid-December right so it's yeah. like hoping this is a sign there's going to be like this nice Christmas present yeah, yeah, Prime yeah, Minister yeah. Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn um so you know we've been talking about the UK mostly uh we are of course in the US and uh 
I guess I'm wondering sort of how you see and maybe how other people in the Labor Party see what's transpiring here. I mean, obviously, we're not as uh, advanced as you are in some uh, senses because we don't have our own party and we have to wrestle with all of those issues. Um, But, you know, when I go, when I meet people from other countries, socialists from other countries, they always say, I kind of give this little apology about how I'm sorry that our left sucks so much, yours is so much better. And they're just like, no, 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 no. Like the fact that you guys are, you know, moving in the right direction is is ideal for for us, like for somebody from a country like Brazil, let's say. Because like what happens in the U.S. impacts what we are able to do on the left in Brazil so much or whatever other country it is. Is sort of transatlantic solidarity between these rising lefts going to be essential to the success of either program? Like, what is what is that relationship going to look like between uh, the rising left here and and the uh, the the left rising left in the UK that will hopefully be occupying Ten Downing Street uh, by by the end of the year? Well, I hope very close. Uh, I know that you know a, a load of the kind of campaigning strategies and tactics have been passed over from one side of the Atlantic to the other uh, on various iterations of these campaigns. So from the first Corbyn leadership campaign over to Bernie's campaign and back. And there have been, you know, momentum organizers have been working with people in in Bernie's campaign, doing things like, uh, you know, we organized, uh, not we, so momentum organized a while ago to have a load of people from the US call around folks in the UK and say, we have this terrible healthcare system. It's awful. And then vice versa. So, you know, people saying we have the NHS, this is how it works. Like that was a really good example of, of kind of transatlantic solidarity. This is um, the good globalization. Right? Exactly. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, well, yeah, this is like internationalism, right? Globalization is a euphemism for colonialism and imperialism. Internationalism is, yeah, something very, very different. Um, yeah. And I mean, actually speaking of that, that is why what matters in, in, in the US left what happens on the US left matters so much because, I mean, for a long time before 2008, a lot of Marxists were basically like the imperialism as a kind of a fix, as a, like a spatial fix for like the tensions that had emerged under social democratic capitalism in the post-war period, i.e. a more powerful working class, was working really well because you could basically just offshore all labor create a a hyper-exploited class of working people in the global south, tighten up your borders to keep them out, and and, and then, you know, all that excess surplus value that is extracted in the global south can be repatriated through the financial system uh, to the core, to the global north, and give, you know, rise to basically a kind of labor aristocracy to a bunch of people who were able to buy their own houses, who were able to kind of have high wages, uh, have all this wealth and stuff. And that was like a really serious view uh, on the left before the financial crisis was just that people in the global north weren't exploited enough to deliver socialism and as such working class people in the u.s would continue to support imperialism which would prevent the emergence of socialism in those places that did have large working class populations so basically we were screwed but since the financial crisis the like that's changed quite a lot um, I think we now know the importance of what well, the importance of working class organizing in the global north, but also the feasibility of that because the promise of creating uh, this this labor aristocracy, these mini capitalists, is slowly evaporating. And that is not to say that living standards in the global north are going to converge with those in the global south, but it is to say that things are going to get worse for working people in the global north. And when things are getting worse, not better. That's revolutionary conditions. People get used to a standard of living. When it starts to deteriorate, 
they push back against that. And the biggest thing I think, you know, the, the US left could deliver, and this is to a similar extent the same with the UK, is getting out of the way of the rest of the world. Uh, you know, imagine where we'd be, re like the pink tide in Latin America, had there not been the US, the IMF, the World Bank, et cetera, to push back against that. You know, the same with uh, many parts of Southern Europe and the European Union. Because uh, you know, obviously you know, the presidency, a lot of people will say the presidency doesn't matter because if they don't have control of Congress, but controlling international policy, controlling foreign policy, determining trade agreements, relationships with the with international institutions will matter loads because we are going into this moment of instability all over the world and we are going to start to see more and more pushback from more and more places against neoliberalism and the IMF is going to try and sweep in and like push down those revolutions uh the US is going to try and impose sanctions on a bunch of places that attempt to kind of do socialism and that not happening and potentially you know the creation of new international institutions that actually embed solidarity between global north and global south, between workers in those two parts of the world, that could facilitate the emergence of what, you know, the left has been hoping for for a while, which is like socialism in those parts of the world where working people are hyper-exploited. And this is related to the question about solutionism that we were just talking about, because like, you know, you're, you're laying out, basically the only, the only way that what you just laid out will happen is if Bernie Sanders yeah. is his president? Because like if if Elizabeth Warren, who is the solutionist candidate, who has some ideas about you know some decent, moderately decent social democratic programs at home, but clearly doesn't have that analysis about the U.S.'s imperialist role in the world. I mean, she's not going to be the one to lead the U.S. getting out of the way, right? Like, yeah. she's not the one who's articulating a, a left. Uh, international you know foreign policy in the way that sanders has yeah so that solutionism won't won't produce the kind of things that you were just talking about that we need so much in in the global south and throughout the rest yeah of the world. and even like bernie isn't you know an amazing like internationalist who's going to completely transform the way the imf works but that doesn't matter because the the way that he's going to be able to deliver what he wants on foreign policy is by tapping into this relatively deep vein of non-interventionism that exists amongst the American population. And that is not always motivated. In fact, the majority of the time not motivated by solidarity is motivated by the idea of we don't want our troops going over to some strange part of the world where we don't know what's going on, right? So, you know, in many ways you have to be like, you have to be practical about this and like think about what's possible. I think, if you know, maybe if Bernie stood up and said, we need to save the world and deliver, you know, a new Marshall plan to the global South and all these other things that we'd like to see happening, that wouldn't go down so well as just saying, non-interventionism works because we've been stuck in all these stupid imperialist wars that have actually made the world more dangerous rather than more safe. But even that is like a big, a big thing just in terms of getting out of the way. Uh, And I think ultimately, like Corbyn is much more on it in terms of internationalism. I think a Corbyn government would actually do a lot to try and change or replace these international institutions, international norms when it comes to intellectual property, tax treaties, etc., that keep the, glo- the global south in a kind of dependent position. Um, so having those two in office together would be, I mean, it'd be incredible, right? It would be literally, I don't want to even hope to dream of that reality because it would just be like, Can oh you imagine God. them just like embracing? You oh, know, this is like porn to me. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, uh, we will all be, you know, wishing you the best come uh, December. If if uh, if if the best does not happen, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pretty crushed. So just for me, so good for me, good for I'm probably out of a job as well. <laughs> uh, so the book is stolen. Uh, you can buy it over there. Grace, thank you so much for uh, coming to and speaking with us. Thanks for having me. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.